Um, today I've labeled the message, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is from the text in 1 Kings chapter 19. I might change the title depending on how things go. Um, I'm maybe 50-50 on this one, but the story, the story is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. It reads like this. Now, the story of Elijah is very interesting. It's one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. If you haven't read it, go to chapter 18, 17. It starts from 1 Kings chapter 17, um, and it talks about what Elijah did. There was a, uh, he declared a three-and-a-half-year drought upon the land as a, as a judgment upon the idol worship that was going on among the people of God. And then at the end of the three-and-a-half-year drought, he gathers all of the prophets of Baal on top of this mountain, Mount Carmel, and he invites them. He says, he says, go call on your God. Come on, like call on your God and which, and I will also call on my God. And whichever God answers by fire, he is God. And so all the prophets of Baal, they are all, all right, this is great. We're going to destroy this. And so they begin to call on their God, Baal. From day until night, and, and they cut themselves, they're going crazy, nothing. And then the story is that Elijah calls on God, and God comes down by fire. And then, and then after this, um, he declares the end of the drought. Um, and then after the drought, there's the, the, the pouring rain that comes. He runs ahead of Ahab. Now Ahab goes to tell the queen what just happened because Elijah had also killed all those prophets of Baal. And so Jezebel, the queen at that time, says that God do to me more than if by the end of today I do not make your life like one of the prophets. So now Elijah's going, <gasps> he runs and he hides in a cave. Right After all that he had done, he goes and hides in a cave, and this is where the story picks up. Verse 9, actually, not 8, verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And so he goes on. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed all your prophets with, with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord says to him, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the presence, in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him again and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, and, and, and I'm going to dramatize it a little bit. I don't know if he actually did it this way or not, but it just feels to me that this is, he goes like, I have been zealous for the Lord. 
For the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have broken your covenant, tore down your oaths, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they want to take my life. That's how it sounds to me when I read it. After all of the things and the powerful way that he had worked in the name of the Lord, under the command of the Lord, now he's sitting here whining, whining, complaining. That's why the voice comes to him. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? I have a, a similar experience. Back in 1998, um, we, we had gone down with the family and we were in the U.S. for about a year, a little bit in New Jersey and the rest of it in Dallas. And I was doing a contract there and I felt that the Lord had opened the door for me there to, to remain. And uh, after the contract that was going to continue on, it was, a, it was a great contract. It created a lot of opportunities and, and, of course, we went to church there. I mean, we, we hooked up with a really good church. And one Sunday, I was sitting there in worship. And I heard a voice from the Lord saying, What are you doing here, Ara? What are you doing here? And you know when the Lord asks you that question, it, it, it kind of just, it's a prick in the heart. You kind of take stock of all of where you are. Um, what you've been complaining about and how you got to this place no longer makes sense because as soon as it comes out of your mouth, it kind of falls to the ground and you know how nonsensical it sounds. When the Lord asks you, what are you doing here? And you begin to justify to the Lord, this is why I'm here. Immediately, it becomes nonsense because the spirit of the Lord being alive and active in you doesn't allow you to wallow in your complaints. It doesn't allow you to stay in that state. As soon as he asks the question, it's like the hand is already on you to pull you out. But the story of Elijah is very important from a biblical perspective because um, it wasn't just a prophet, but it was a promise that said that when Christ is going to come, that I will send the, 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 the spirit of Elijah, he will come with power and he will prepare the way for the Lord. So Elijah plays a very important role. We need to understand that. And so when Jesus came, we know that he had a forerunner who was John the Baptist. Right? And then Jesus testifies of John the Baptist. He says that this is Elijah. This is who Elijah is supposed to be. He came before to prepare the way for me. But it goes beyond that. We see that he actually sets up a, 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 a way of working. That Jesus, whenever he comes, he sends before him a forerunner. In the power and the spirit of Elijah. So if we understand what Elijah did. We understand what John the Baptist did. We will begin to recognize the signs of the forerunner of Christ before we're going to get a visitation. Does it hold true in the second coming of Christ? Absolutely it does. We will again see the power of the spirit of Elijah coming as a forerunner before we see Jesus return the second time. However, it applies to us today. Every time we have a visitation or a prepared, a visitation is being prepared by the Lord. We have something that comes along beforehand that prepares it. And we know that this is the work 
of the spirit of Elijah that was promised. So what do these things look like? There's a couple of things, actually, I want to I wanna take you through. And, and um, uh, one of them is actually a failing. One of them is great, and we see the sign of it. The other one is a failing. And, and I want to propose to you that John the Baptist wasn't 100% in doing what he was supposed to do. Right? I'm just putting it out there. I don't want it to sound like oh, sacrilege, you know, you're introducing something from, you know, that's, that's not written in the Bible. That may be, all right? I'm just asking for a little bit of license from, from you guys as, as I'm kind of also just pondering what might have been and how what we see, not as a prescription, what we're reading in the Bible about the life of John the Baptist as a prescription of how we should behave, but rather a story that says this is how it was and allow the Lord to actually speak to us in case we are stuck in a place that, says, that, that the Lord then calls out to us, what are you doing here? You follow me? Okay, so this is the, this is the thing. Two things about John the Baptist. He was a Baptist. What did he do? He came and began to baptize the nation of Israel with a baptism of repentance. And the nation of Israel just went out to him. Like they are almost all of them recognized this is right. We need to do this. We need to go and be baptized by John. Whereas nowhere in the Bible do you read any kind of form of formal baptism per se that, you know, this is how you repent before the Lord and you go and be baptized. Nothing like that written. However, there are stories that indicate a form of baptism. And all of the Israelites knew these biblical stories. I mean, they're all in the Old Testament. So when they went to synagogue, these stories were all recounted. One of them was the story of Noah. How Noah was saved out of water. That the world was destroyed by water, but Noah was saved out of the water. So now he starts a new life, right? Water destroys the old, brings about the new. Another story is the uh, Israelites. When they came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. The Egyptians died in the Red Sea, meaning the old life dies. You give up your old life and you step into the new in Christ. You repent. What does repentance mean but to change your mind? It's like, okay, you know what? This life isn't working. This life isn't working. This world isn't working. These formulas don't work. This government doesn't work. My life doesn't work. I need something new. The Lord gives it to you. He says, come to me. Change your mind about who I am. Repent, repent, and come to me and I will give you a new life. And that comes in Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's what it was. The Israelites came out of Egypt, which means the world, and they came into the new. Now, there was a time before 40 years, that's another story, but, and then they eventually went in. But even there, there was a crossing of the water, that that next generation, they had to go through something. They went through the River Jordan. Again, the old life, the wilderness life left behind, come into the promised land through water. So the Israelites knew about this thing. So when John the Baptist came and says, be baptized with repentance, the Israelites knew exactly. Because the word Hebrew itself means water crosser. Did you know that? The word Hebrew was applied to Abraham first. 
He called Abraham the Hebrew. Well, what happened to Abraham? Well, he left the Ur of the Chaldeans. He came through, blah, blah, blah. He crossed the water and came into the new land. That's why he was called the Hebrew, because he crossed something significant to be where he is. And so the Israelites know to be a Hebrew, you have to have crossed the water. John the Baptist comes, baptism of repentance. He's baptizing them in the Jordan. In other words, guys, you've been living in the wilderness. You need to step into the promised land for real. I'm baptizing you. They all went out to him. They all went out to him. Repentance for where you are, something that you don't want to stay in. You're giving your life to the Lord. You repent. You go through the water and you come out new. That's, not, that's the first ministry of John the Baptist. And then who shows up? Jesus. Jesus shows up. And John the Baptist like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I need to be baptized of you. You should be the one baptizing me. You're the one that's taking. You're the, you're the one. He didn't get the second thing that prepares the way of the Lord. And the preparation of the way of the Lord was what he did to Jesus. And Jesus said, permit it to be so now. For it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting with this to fulfill all righteousness. What was he doing? John the Baptist was of a priestly line. His father was a priest, ministered in the, in the, in the temple, was visited by Gabriel and so on. The, re, the story is in Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist was of a priestly line. Jesus comes as the Lamb of God. And in the, in the uh, ordinances, in the law, they were supposed to wash the sacrifice before sacrificing. So that's what he was doing for Jesus, he washed the sacrifice. What he was actually saying without realizing, John the Baptist was saying without realizing, was that you are the sacrifice. He did say it somewhere else, but it didn't somehow stick. I'll get to that in a second. This is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world, actually John the Baptist's words. And then he washed Jesus. And we see as soon as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And from then on, we see a ministry of power for three years before he goes to the cross. Right? So now, the second thing is really, really important. Really important. Because if we don't see that, we will end up where John the Baptist ends up. And this is where I wanted to ask for a little bit of license in saying that he didn't get it, but it's written the story in the Bible. He didn't get it. He stumbled on it. But now we have the opportunity to learn from it. Let's see, where did we end up here? Malachi told you guys, okay, so it, it's prophesied. Okay, let's just pause there for a second. Let me just turn this off so we're not distracted. Maybe mute. Done. Okay. John the Baptist, after he does this, he lands in jail. So his ministry is cut off. While the ministry of Jesus begins to really take off. 
Jesus is healing, he's raising the dead, he's opening the ears of the deaf, he's opening the eyes of the blind, he's cleansing the lepers, he's doing all kinds of amazing things while John is in jail. So at some point, there was um, a question that builds up in John the Baptist. He says, he sends his disciples to Jesus. He says, are you the coming one or do we look for another? It's a funny question, isn't it? Like to ask. Now, John the Baptist, remember, he was six months older than Jesus. They were relatives. There was a prophecy on John the Baptist that he would uh, prepare the way for Jesus to come. Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah. So the whole thing was known, and this thing carries on for 30 years. 30 years until Jesus comes into the ministry. For 30 years, it's known. That he is the Messiah. He is the one that's supposed to come. What is this question? Are you the coming one or do we look for another? What was going on in John that he would feel compelled to ask this question? And this is the same place that you and I can very easily fall into. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, as this happens, I want to take you through. As this happens, look at what the Bible says about this situation. Okay, Luke chapter 7, 18 to 23. I'm just going to read it, and you guys follow along. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And at that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. That's a funny statement to me. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So, just ponder where John is at. He's sitting in prison. He's wondering if Jesus is the Messiah. Why? He knew, but why? There was an expectation among the people of Israel, especially when you are taught that before Messiah comes, there will be the spirit of Elijah. There's a prophesying, the prophecy upon a man that says you are going to go in the spirit of Elijah. You're going to prepare the way for him. Because Malachi, if I just want to just take it, look at what it says. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What are the people waiting for? They're waiting for a great and dreadful day of the Lord. Where Jesus, the Messiah, will come in power. He will come with his angel armies. He will overrun the evil Roman government. He will boot them out. He was established the messianic kingdom right then and there that's what john the baptist was expecting 
how is it that he landed himself in jail? Moreover, why isn't Jesus doing anything about it? Why? That when Jesus hears that John has been put into prison, he goes the opposite way. Doesn't call his angel armies. Doesn't go on a rescue mission. Doesn't do anything like that. But continues his ministry of healing the sick. Opening the eyes of the blind. Opening the ears of the deaf. Casting out demons. Preaching the gospel to the poor. And asking people not to be offended. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Oh, I have, been, I have been zealous for the Lord. I have kept everything. But look at the government around me. Look at how much taxes I have to pay. Why isn't the, 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 the Messiah coming and just overrunning? Oh, he's coming soon, isn't he? Yes, he is. Oh, we're going to see all of these things that we're seeing, all of the evil around us that we're seeing. We're going to see the Messiah just come and overrun them. Oh, why don't we do something about it? Why don't we jump in and be that army for him? Why don't we get, gather up a group of zealots and go on these, these protests? Let's go on these marches. Let's... let's Okay, let me just pause real quick here. You guys see where I'm alluding to, right? There were a group of zealots at the time of Jesus. Barabbas was one of them. Judas was another. They were wanting exactly what the scriptures are saying. They want to see the kingdom of God come in power. They're expecting their Messiah to come with angel armies, destroy the evil empire of Rome, and establish his messianic kingdom. Why isn't he doing that? So they became disillusioned. One of them betrayed the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. Another one had gone on on a murder spree and was in prison. And the, the, the crowds decided they want him instead of a dying Messiah. What's going on? What's going on here? This is what I wonder. This is when I sit there and I, in, in, in my bed, I'm staring at the ceiling and counting the popcorn on, on there. I'm, I'm wondering what was going on there. What were they feeling? What were they going? What were they thinking about? Why did they choose Barabbas? Was it just the, the, the crowds were incited by the priests? Why didn't the priests want Jesus? Why did they choose Barabbas? Why did they go along with Judas? All of these questions are answered by this one question that John the Baptist asked. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Are you the coming one? Why aren't you doing what we expect you to do? Why are we seeing the proliferation of evil why isn't there a move, a powerful move of God to put down evil in this world today? Why are we not seeing all of that? What is the ministry of Jesus then that Jesus says, I do this, 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 and this, and I, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So it's things to ponder Things to consider. Everything that you look at, every media report that you read, 
every news report that you listen to, everything that irks your heart, and you wonder what's going on, every rise up that you see by the Christian community, and, and as blessed as they are, honestly, it's good. There's one thing that we cannot lose sight of, that Jesus' ministry is the ministry of the cross today. Nothing else. It is the ministry of the cross. If we want to do battle against evil with the same weapons that, that are being used against good today, you are fighting a losing battle because you have picked up carnal weapons against a carnal enemy and it will go nowhere. In fact, you will be defeated badly. You will become more distraught. You will become more disappointed, disillusioned. And you will ask the question and you will look for people that are rising up that seem to have a great voice and you will rally behind them to protest and to do this. And to do. I'm not saying those things are bad. They will happen in time, maybe even today. I'm not speaking against those. I'm talking about the absence of the embracing of the cross as the way of life. The way of the cross. What John the Baptist came to prepare for us was to wash the sacrifice. And if it's a ministry that each of us are responsible to carry, who are you as John the Baptist? What are you doing to prepare the sacrifice who's going to the cross? How are you speaking when somebody comes to you distraught and says, man, I see all of these things that are going on. I'm going to end in, in a few minutes here with, with, with something that's really, at least it it's, feels really important to me. And I'll tell you in a second. How are we preparing ourselves to walk the walk of the cross? What does the cross even mean? It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of sacrifice. But it's a life that recognizes a weapon that is different than the weapon of the world. When you see evil, how do you fight against it? Do you lay down your life? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you say, it's okay, with my life I will pay? Let me actually jump ahead. What Jesus did on the cross, he disarmed all of the enemies of God. Right? We know that. By going on the cross, what he did was different than anybody expected. His own disciples, everybody around. I would venture to say there was only one person that understood, and that was Mary, who, who poured uh, oil, the fragrance. She was probably, I could be wrong, but she was probably the only one that understood because he said to her, he says, leave her alone. She did what was right. For my burial, she prepared. Right? Okay. So, what we do here, today, in the face of Jesus going to the cross, in the face of others 
experiencing evil in the face of us having the option of taking the cross. We might not even understand what the cross is. All we see is good and evil. We don't understand the sacrifice that's behind that. Because the cross, in disarming the evil, the Bible says that if they had known how badly, I'm paraphrasing, how badly they would be disarmed, how quickly and completely they would lose their authority, they would never have crucified him. They thought by crucifying him, they were actually winning. But what happened was they lost really badly, embarrassing loss. So what Jesus' cross did was he gained such authority that is still a mystery today. What that authority looks like is a mystery today. In that, if you understand the cross and stand in it and say, this is my MO. This is the way I'm going to live. Lord, I don't understand it, but at every opportunity, every opportunity, show me the two options that I have and make me understand the cross as my option. I can choose warfare or I can choose the cross. Jesus says, don't you know that I have more than, I don't know how many legions of angels at my disposal I can call right now and just destroy them. But he says that wouldn't accomplish the Father's will. You have a choice. Every day you have a choice. Warfare or the cross. But the cross is really hard to embrace because it's a mystery. It comes by revelation. It comes by recognizing how much you accomplish the fact that there's a resurrection on the other side is a guarantee. I mean, it's given, right? You have to know that. But what authority you gain in that sacrifice is a mystery. It's hard to understand. But by faith, you can. Because as soon as you embrace the cross, your prayers become powerful. Heaven takes notice and clears the way for angelic forces to come alongside that your words from that position of sacrifice are the words of God themselves that the angels are listening to. They go, we heard the command. Didn't come from God, it came from this mouth. But he mimics Christ. He looks like Christ on the cross. We do what he says. All, all commissioned by Christ. I'm not talking about anything sacrilegious here. Here's a psalm. And I'll share that with you another day. I don't want to go too deep. It's just this thing just goes into so many different directions it can. What sacrifice, what the cross does in every single situation, it rallies the, the, the whole host of heaven the armies of God behind that act. And, and we see things, people becoming free and, and, uh, um, and, and diseases being healed, blindness, deafness. But it's interesting that, that in what they were expecting, the people around John the Baptist, they were expecting, and what John the Baptist was expecting, Jesus' response 
is even mysterious in this way. He says, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. I mean, if, if Jesus wasn't saying it, I, and, and I don't mean to be, um, uh, you know, irreverent, but he goes, the poor have the gospel preached to them? Why is that significant? We're expecting a Messiah to come like a warrior, and you're telling me that the poor have the gospel preached to them? What gospel? What's the good news? You guys picking up what's going on here, right? Because how easily that trap can open right before us and we fall into the trap that, that we say, are you the coming one or not? How often have I said it, I can't tell you, where I've really, really needed something and it just seemed like God was not present. He just wasn't there. He left me in my prison. He left me there. And I'm seeing all of these things that are happening around me in Christian circles and the wonderful, wonderful things that are happening in Christian circles. And I'm thinking, why am I in prison? You may have had that same sentiment yourself. What's going on here, Lord? What's going on? And this is Jesus. And again, another mystery that, that must have just dro driven the, the disciples, the people of God crazy, was that he had done all of these things for three years, and now he's coming up to Jerusalem. Everybody knows he's on his way to Jerusalem. What's going to happen to Jerusalem? Well, they're going to inaugurate him king, of course. Isn't it obvious? They're going to inaugurate him king. And he's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to... He's going to put to flight all of the evil forces and he's going to establish the kingdom of the, of the Messiah. Well, well, let's put him on the donkey and let's, let's usher him there. Hosanna, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he goes into Jerusalem. What does he do? Cleanses the temple. What happened to Romans? What happened to this? What happened to that? What happened to this? Is it any wonder that these people that were crying Hosanna were probably the same people that afterwards cried out, crucify him, crucify him, because now they're disillusioned with what he's, go, what, what he's doing. How is it that our Messiah, the King, the guy that is doing all of these things, and, and, and it, it's interesting that as he enters Jerusalem, only John records this, that as he enters into Jerusalem and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, he does the, 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 the temple cleansing, that he doesn't go in to be king. So what happens? A group of Greeks come to visit him. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Take us to Jesus. Do you know what they wanted? It's not obvious. They wanted to take him and make him king. Jews don't want him, so let's make him king. What's Jesus' response? He goes, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will produce much. Wow. That's what you're doing? So the disciples didn't understand. Judas immediately goes and betrays him. And they're all rallying up around how to crucify him. The disciples are going along, not really knowing what's going on. And then when, when Jesus is arrested, they all 
take off and go and lock their doors. Right? You could see what's going on. But the cross is what's going on. The cross is what's going on. The cross is what's going on. That is what we need to have going on. The cross is what we need to be going on in our lives. That is the answer to everything. Everything. A life of sacrifice. You lay it down. You lay it down. What? The only son? The one that's the promise? The one that you promised me, the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea, this is the one that you want me to sacrifice? Yeah. But what my dreams? You want me to sacrifice all my dreams? Yep. What about all those things that I've been praying for? On the cross. Is there anything, Lord, that I can keep Funny thing that each of us carries a John the Baptist in our hearts. Each of us carries a ministry of Elijah in ushering in the coming of the Lord for ourselves and for our families and for our friends and whoever around us. You are Elijah. You are commissioned to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It is your commission. But it doesn't come without the cross. Let's stand up together. I hope that made sense. It's just beginning to make sense for me. I hope you're running ahead. Because if it's making sense to you, Chances are very good you're seeing some things that I haven't seen yet. I want to hear those. There is no other ministry in this time of the church other than the cross. The church doesn't have authority in so many areas because the church has picked up carnal weapons and is fighting evil with those weapons. Not with the cross. Because the cross has power, has authority, has the angelic host behind it. Take a deep breath. I did get a little preachy, I'm sorry. Jesus. It is your grace, only by your grace, that we can understand your cross. I have skimmed over the verses where it says, if you don't hate this mother and father, son and daughter, whatever else, and unless you pick up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. I have skimmed over that verse hundreds of times, the years that I've been a Christian Lord. I'm pausing there now. If I have said in my heart, and I know I have many times, 
Are you the powerful, mighty warrior Messiah? Or do I look for someone else? Why am I sitting here rotting, not accomplishing? Jesus, I confess it to you now. In repentance, I lay it at your feet and ask your forgiveness. Ask your blood to wash me of my presumptuous posture, thinking that I know better of what a kingdom should have. Lord, and I have looked for it for an earthly kingdom and I have neglected to see the kingdom in mystery, the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I ask your forgiveness. I ask to be washed of the blood. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Just have a seat for a second. I just had another thought I want to share. This one other thing with you, and I think it's important. One of the things that John the Baptist did, and it's just an opinion, Salpi and I have been talking about it, and, and uh, um, it, it really lands well with me, is that when we take a posture that is a, a worldly posture against evil, we also end up pointing our fingers where they don't belong to be pointed. And you will put your finger at somebody's face and your ministry will be cut short. And I believe that this is why John the Baptist landed in jail. And his ministry was cut short. Because he was out to... Sinner, 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 sinner. And he did that to one wrong person, Herod. And boom. He was caught. Running ahead of the Lord. But what was the Lord saying? He was embracing all of the sinners. He was eating with them. A little bit of a dichotomy, a bit of a mystery, perhaps. I'm not saying that this is right, but just consider it. What does the ministry of the cross look like? Is that what we're supposed to do, is put our finger into every wrong of the world? Jesus, I don't remember Jesus ever doing that to Rome or Herod or anybody else. Just a thought. I could be wrong. Just a thought. So Lord, we just lay it at your feet. But there's so much here, Lord, that we, we want to chew on and digest and just, just absorb. God, show us. Open heaven. Lord, and if, if, if this repentance on not understanding the cross and just laying it at your feet, was there anything genuine that moves your heart? Lord, open up heaven and show me. Show me who you are in truth. Lord, I cannot, I, I don't want you know, there's so many times, Lord, I have been so interested in reading the news. I read it day one, day two, day three, day ten. Day Afterwards, I just just choking. But then, Lord, you come with a refreshing. 
and you show me your son on the cross in his resurrection power as the lamb that was slain, Lord, and that puts refreshing in my heart. Now I know that there's hope, that the evil is not going to win, that you are going to win, that you are victorious, that your victory is guaranteed, but it's on the other side of the cross. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. I hope this moved you a little bit. It's been moving me. Just want you to guys to, right?